so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the Digital Public Square, a podcast from the Research Institute of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission about ethics, theology, and philosophy in today's society. I'm your host, Jason Thacker, and I serve here as a research fellow in Christian ethics. Each week, I'm joined by some of society's most influential thinkers, writers, and leaders to talk about the important ideas shaping our society today, as well as some of the top issues of life in the digital public square. Our goal with this podcast is to equip you to navigate these issues with biblical wisdom and insight. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the weekly tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology, as well as life in the public square. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Nathan Finn to talk about a new volume that he co-edited entitled A Handbook of Theology from the recently released Theology for the People of God series with Age Academic. Today, we discuss the centrality of theology and ethics in the Christian life and how history informs how we understand some of the most pressing challenges to our faith today. Nathan currently serves as the provost and dean of the university faculty at North Greenville University in Tigerville, South Carolina. He's the editor or author of several volumes, including the Theology for the People of God series, Historical Theology for the Church, and History as Student's Guide. He also serves as the teaching pastor at Taylor's First Baptist Church in South Carolina and as a research fellow for the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Nathan, thank you so much for joining us today here on the Digital Public Square. As we get started, I'd love to hear a little bit about your story, kind of your interest in theology and ethics, obviously, as a historian, and a little of the background of this new series with BH Academic. Yeah, Jason, I'm really honored to be on the podcast and appreciate the invitation. So, technically speaking, I guess I'm a church historian because I did a degree in church history. Having said that, uh, one of the reasons I did a degree in church history is because I'm interested in everything. And so my historian friends make fun of me and they say, Finn, you're really a theologian. And my theologian friends make fun of me and say, you're not one of us, you're a historian. But uh, my story is I'm just very interested in what it means to think Christianly and to live faithfully. Uh, I know that sounds a little bit simplistic, but that's just, I care deeply about that, both personally uh, and as an educator for the church. That's what I care about. So I'm one of those folks who wrestled for years with what I wanted to do a PhD in. And there were seasons where if you would have asked me, I would have said, I want to do church history. And there were seasons I would have said, I want to do systematic theology. And there were seasons I said, I wanted to do ethics. And there was even a brief season uh, where I thought about biblical studies. Uh, But at the end of the day, uh, one of the reasons, in fact, really the primary reason that I chose to do church history 
is because it would enable me in some ways uh, to be a generalist and to know a little bit about lots of different things. And so for me, it's never been about being a pure church historian who's uh, writing academic monographs on various historical topics. I mean, I've done just enough of that to have a foot in the guild. For me, church history has really been an entryway into the history of Christian theology, the history of Christian spirituality, the history of Christian social ethics. Those are the things that I'm really excited about. And, and, and so for me, church history is not so much my academic discipline as it is my gateway drug into all the topics that I'm really interested in. And you asked about the series. I'm so glad you asked. Theology for the People of God. Uh, I'm one of the three general editors, along with David Dockery and Chris Morgan, and we're super excited. This is the first Baptist systematic theology series that has been published. So there's lots of fine Baptist systematic theology textbooks, some of them single-authored, some of them collections of essays. Those are wonderful. But what happened is about five or six years ago, me and, and David and Chris were really reflecting on uh, sort of the way that evangelical scholarship and Southern Baptist scholarship were coming together in a, in a post-conservative resurgence world in SBC life. And, and what were all the different ways that we were really seeing long-term and longing for long-term theological renewal among evangelical Baptists. And that led us to uh, pitch this series to our friends at BNH Academic, and they very graciously took it on. So it's a 16-volume series of uh, different loci of systematic theology, uh, along with a companion volume, which is a handbook of theology. I think we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. And, uh, and, and there's really two things that make the series unique. Uh, one is that all of the authors are evangelical Baptists, uh, so they're writing from that confessional perspective, uh, as well as those evangelical emphases on the importance of the gospel and the Great Commission and the authority of Scripture and whatnot. But then the other thing is we're really, all of our volumes are co-authored by one scholar who is primarily a biblical or exegetical scholar, and another who is primarily a historical or systematic scholar. And it's really putting uh, historical and systematic theology in dialogue with biblical theology and, and wanting all of that to be represented. Uh, so we're really excited about it. We hope this is the sort of series that not only blesses students and pastors and the church, uh, but that it also becomes a good representation of kind of where we are at this moment in Christian history with evangelical Baptist theology and that it contributes to the ongoing renewal of Baptist faith and practice. That's our prayer. Yeah, the series is really exciting, especially the first volume on the Holy Spirit and then this handbook, which you said is kind of distinct from the rest of the series and the way the rest of the series will kind of play out. But one of the things that I love about this is that this series isn't just designed for academics. Obviously, it is in many ways, but it's also not just designed for seminarians. It's designed for the church to equip the local church, to educate the local church, and help her on the mission that she's been given. So I wanted to see if you could kind of talk a little bit about that. I know in the preface, that is, you all reference this idea of an ecclesial theologian and the great need to retrieve this rich theological framework for Christian ministry, but then all of life. 
And I think many listeners to the podcast, that idea of like all of life also encompasses ethics, which obviously is kind of my passion and uh, expertise here. So what is your hopes for how this volume and how this series in particular would be used in the local church context? I really appreciate this question. There are two things we did not want to do with this series that are good things, but they weren't for this series. We did not want to do lay-level theology, even though we are big believers in the importance of lay-level theology. We also didn't want to do technical academic monographs that are really only for academic theologians, even though we think there are great, there is great value to those type of volumes, especially uh, written by evangelical scholars. All of that's good, but we are deeply convinced that one of the things that is not unique to Baptists, but is distinctive of Baptists, is the importance of meaningful local church membership, uh, the importance, to use an old-fashioned word, of, uh, of being churchmen who are committed to the local church. And whenever you look around at Baptist theologians, broadly defined, there are certainly some wonderful pastor theologians who we celebrate. And there are some top-shelf technical scholars who we learn from. But the vast majority of our working theologians in Baptist life are men and sometimes women who originally felt called to the ministry of the gospel in some way. They felt called to be a pastor or a youth minister or a missionary or a worship leader or something like that. And along the way, the Holy Spirit got a hold of them and they got interested in this world of biblical and theological studies. And instead of moving away from that, we wanted to lean into that distinctiveness about evangelical Baptist scholars and say, what would it look like to have volumes that certainly have great value in the classroom as, uh, as textbooks in a class on the doctrine of salvation, for example, but it's also the sort of book that is on a pastor's shelf that he can reference. It's on a youth director's shelf so that she can pull it down and benefit from it. Or it's the sort of book that a group of elders or a group of deacons or a group of interns might read together so that they could grow in their faith. I don't know that there's a perfect way to do it, but we wanted to bridge that gap between the church and the academy as much as we could, even if it means it's a challenging read for some folks in the church and some folks in the academy say, eh, I've heard most of this before. Uh, we just think there's great value, especially for Baptist pastor scholars, to uh, to try and bridge that gap as much as possible. And an important part of that is wanting to make sure that all of the volumes to some degree and some of the volumes to a considerable degree take into account what we call uh, practical pastoral theology. What is the takeaway for the Christian life? What is the takeaway for life and godliness? Uh, how do we live more faithfully and, and care about our walks with Christ and the health of our churches and healthy Christian ethics and sanctification? And how do these different theological topics 
contribute to all of that. And so we, we were very zealous to not just have a book where hopefully a professor or a pastor or whoever is going to say, now here's some ways we can apply this, but we're actually suggesting some ways to apply this, what it means for the health of the church, what it means for spiritual formation, what it means for engaging with the big questions for such a time as this, that, that folks who are trying to think and live faithfully are having to navigate. Yeah, one of the things I want to pick up on here in a little bit is that idea of sanctification. It's obviously the chapter that you contributed to this volume, but then how that connects with the ideas of ethics and all of life and the idea of integrity and character as well. But before we get that, one of the things I note when I pick up a theology volume is where they start. Because I think that actually says a lot about the kind of the idea, the trajectory, how they are approaching the study of theology. In this volume in particular, you all start kind of, instead of walking through maybe in a major doctrine like the doctrine of God, which you could have started with, many do, you start with some of the foundational things like the types of theology, the history and the role of geography and the idea of uh, the different doctrines, and then finally getting into theology and culture before really diving into the doctrines. What's significant about the approach that you all are taking in this specific, this handbook itself? Our desire is for the handbook of theology to be as reasonably comprehensive as it can possibly be in an introductory manner. So it's not comprehensive in the sense that it says everything that needs to be said about any topic. All of the essays are introductory. Uh, They're written for people Uh, where we're not assuming beforehand that they have any significant knowledge about the topic. But we didn't want it to be, on the one hand, like the uh, Baker Dictionary of Theology, where there's, you know, 500 short entries, or on the other hand, uh, like an Oxford Handbook or a Cambridge Companion, where they're all essays that are kind of summarizing the leading scholarship of the day. Again, we wanted something in between that. And, and so as we began talking about what we wanted that to look like, there were earlier versions where we did talk about just having essays on the low side of theology and that being just about everything. But we began thinking about the need to talk about the different types of theology, systematic versus historical versus biblical versus practical versus philosophical. Of course, those different doctrines, but then thinking about different theological traditions, you know, what what about Reformation theology or what about patristic theology? Thinking about different applications, the the last 40% of the book or so is dedicated to the intersection of theology and fill-in-the-blank, right? You know, theology and the arts or theology and politics or Uh, theology and education, whatever the case might be. Uh, We wanted to reflect on practical theology. What is a baseline theology of evangelism, a theology of worship, uh, a theology of missions? And so we really wanted to provide as many different theologically informed entry points as we possibly could for different types of readers, Uh, whether it's the student who's using this as a supplemental textbook in a systematic theology class, and we know it's being used that way, uh, or whether this is a quick go-to reference book on the shelves of pastors and other ministry leaders uh, whenever they have questions about different matters. In terms of how it intersects with, uh, with the Christian life and with ethics in particular, uh, I don't want to speak on behalf of 
David Dockery and Danny Aiken, um, I think they would agree with this, but I don't know they would say it exactly the same way. But when I think about theology, uh, I define it as thinking rightly about God and his world for the sake of living rightly before God in his world. And so if theological reflection, whether it's rich doctrinal reflection or whether it's the intersection of theology and fill-in-the-blank, if theological reflection doesn't lead to godliness, greater love of God, greater love for neighbor, greater pursuit of holiness, greater wisdom in navigating hard questions, if theology doesn't lead to that, we're doing it wrong even if we're learning a lot of important theological facts. Theology is an academic discipline, but theology is also a ministry of the church. And theology is not the answer to every question, but there are no holistic answers to any questions that don't involve significant engagement with theology. And again, I don't know that my colleagues would say it exactly like that, but I'm 100% confident that they would resonate with that sentiment. Uh, that that's how we're thinking about it, not just systematic theology, but lowercase t theology. What does God, through his word, and with affirmation from the best of the Christian tradition, have to say about all the stuff? That's the vision that we have for theology. Yeah, it reminds me of a quote that many listeners to the podcast will be familiar with from the German theologian Christoph Ernst Luthart uh, that really stood out to me. I was reading one time Hermann Bavink and a little bit of Carl Henry, and both of them referenced this same quote from Luthart from 1876. And he said, theology is God speaking to us, revealing himself to us, and ethics is our response. And I loved that kind of simplistic idea that understanding that theology is about our beliefs, about how God has revealed himself to us and our actions, our responses, our ethic. And I know that's something I resonate with you on. We've talked a lot about and kind of discussed about the relationship, that rich relationship between theology and ethics. But one of the things that I love about you and one of the reasons we've become good friends over the last few years is I love the way you approach these topics historically informed. I think at times, people, especially when we're doing theology or even ethics, we can kind of jump in and act as if we're kind of approaching these things from a novel perspective or we have new questions that have never been considered or we seem to think maybe theology happened in a vacuum or something like that. But there really is a significant historical kind of underpinning in history. I tell my students all the time to reject simplistic narratives because one of the ideas is, is that History is complex. Ideas are complex. They didn't form in a vacuum. They really do have kind of that that background and that trajectory. So I wanted to see is kind of your gifting and connecting theology and ethics and culture as well as history. What is the importance of studying theology in light of church history? And how does our understanding of history shape how we approach issues today? We need to remember that no matter where we are, And no matter what our moment in time and our context, we are in the middle of a story. That story, in some ways, stretches back into eternity past, and in some ways will continue into eternity future. But even if we're talking about the context of creation, it's a long story. And so whenever we are engaging with theological questions— or whenever we are engaging with big ethical questions, 
we need to remember where we are in the story. And instead of assuming, perhaps, as some do, that, uh, that we have some grand new insight that nobody has thought about before, or instead of trying to say something nobody else has said before, I want our first instinct to be, what does the story tell us about this? And I use that phrase story intentionally because I think that encompasses Scripture, which is our final authority for faith and practice. But that story continues beyond Scripture. Church history is is certainly more than, but it is never less than, the history of Christians wrestling with how to rightly interpret and apply God's Word and its implications. And so I don't want to be so novel or so creative, or certainly so clever that I'm implying, or whoever is implying, or the church is implying, that something completely new is happening. When something completely new happens, that's how cults get started. And that's where, uh, that's where bad ideas come from. If I'm engaging with some big ethical question, even if it's something that's relatively new in the story, uh, think about some of the bioethical questions that are going on right now. Even though that's a new issue that maybe a previous generation didn't have to deal with X because the technology for X didn't exist yet and it's seemingly very new, there are still many resources in Scripture first and foremost and secondarily from the Christian tradition to help us know how to engage with those types of questions, even if this is a new application. You've done a lot of work with artificial intelligence. There's a sense in which that's a completely new thing, right? It's something we've only had to wrestle with in the past few years, even though we know we're going to have to wrestle with a lot more as time goes on. At the same time, it is engaging with age-old questions. What is consciousness? What is identity? What is autonomy? How do humans relate to other creatures and created things around us? And there's all these different—none of those are new questions— We're just trying to apply what Scripture says and the best of the Christian tradition to these new situations that are arising, and we're looking for fresh applications and implications of ancient wisdom. So I'm not retrograde, I hope. Uh, I'm not scared of new stuff, and I'm certainly not scared of creative thinking. Uh, But there is a sense in which As a historian, I think we all need to be a little bit more conservative. I don't necessarily mean theologically conservative, though I am one. Uh, But I mean, we need to be conservative in our instincts to say, what is the wisdom that is already there from Scripture and the best of the Christian tradition? And how do we first root ourselves in that wisdom and start answering the question, before we start making jumps to the fresh ideas and applications. We don't want to be novel. Uh, We want to be wise. Uh, And I think that being wise means understanding where we are in the story. No, I think you are spot on. And 
the way you talk about kind of the centrality of wisdom really speaks to me is because that's one of the ways that I see the idea of ethics and how we go about ethics is cultivating that sense of uh, wisdom and virtue and discernment, that character that's needed in order to navigate some of the pressing, seemingly novel questions that we're facing today. And one of the things that I love, the kind of the uh, chapter that you contributed to this volume particularly kind of brings out that idea of sanctification. We said we would get here, so here we are. So we're talking about this doctrine of sanctification. I want to see first if you could kind of talk a little bit about what's distinctive about a Baptist view of sanctification as opposed to some of the other views. And how does looking at the past, even as a historian, kind of help to inform and even shape how we approach this really crucial doctrine of the Christian life? I appreciate this question very much. Um, It's especially the Baptist part, it's something I get asked about pretty frequently because I don't think we often think about Baptists having a theology of sanctification uh, as much as saying uh, Baptists borrow from other larger traditions uh, when it comes to sanctification. And for the most part, I think that's true. Uh, I think by and large, uh, the Baptist tradition has inherited our understanding of sanctification from the broadly Reformed tradition of progressive sanctification, uh, along with evangelical emphases uh, that have been added to that long tradition of sanctification. So I don't think that there's much that is novel about a Baptist uh, theology of sanctification, but I do think there are some distinctives to a Baptist theology of sanctification. So I'm not saying You only find this among Baptists, but I do think they are distinctive to how Baptists think about holiness. So one thing that is obvious is uh, the supreme authority of Scripture. Baptists are, at our best, thick Biblicists. At our worst, we're thin Biblicists. But at our best, we're thick Biblicists. And and, and we are a Bible-saturated people who want to closely tether our arguments for whatever we're talking about to Scripture and have that as settled as it can be before we begin engaging with the other voices. We want to learn from the other voices, but but we want to be rooted in the Scriptures. The Scripture has the final say. So I think that there is absolutely a word-centeredness to a Baptist view of sanctification. Uh, To some degree, it's wrapped up in better understanding and more wisely applying God's Word to our lives. I think a second characteristic, uh, and maybe this is the one that's even a little bit more obvious and and less true of healthy evangelicals in general, we have a very ecclesial understanding of sanctification, at least whenever we're at our best. So if you go back through Baptist history, there's these two types of documents that— Most Baptist churches in most places have drawn upon one or both of these types of documents, uh, besides the Bible. On the one hand, you have our rich confessional tradition. It plays out a little bit differently than our Reformed or Lutheran friends, but most Baptist churches throughout most of history have had some type of confession that they've looked to and said, this is what we believe about the most important questions. Maybe that's not that surprising. A little bit more surprising to some folks is the Baptist tradition of church covenants, because this has been largely lost over the last hundred years and only recently started to be recovered. But there's a long history going all the way back to the 1600s of Baptists confessing their faith, if you will, in a confession, but 
vowing their practice in church covenants. And in these documents saying, this is who we are as a people gathered together under the name Calvary Baptist Church. And this is the promises, the vows that we're making to God and making to each other about the Christian life. And there's a little bit of capital D doctrine in those covenants, but they're mostly discipleship and ethics type documents that are all about what it means to follow Jesus and what do we think about Christian behavior and how we treat each other and, and what, what's right and what's wrong and how do we navigate that. And so uh, I think there's this, this long recognition, even though we talk a lot about Baptist individualism, and that's the thing, you know, my personal walk with Christ, he walks with me and he talks with me. And then there's healthy and unhealthy expressions of that. But Baptists at their best have been individuals in community, covenanting to walk together. That's old Baptist language, to walk together before God and before each other. So there's this deep recognition historically, and I think it's being recovered in many ways in our day, that for Baptists, sanctification is a community project. Lone Ranger spiritual growth is never ideal. What's ideal is I love the Lord more because we're members of the same church and you minister to me as a fellow priest. And you love the Lord more because we're members of the same church and we're walking together in this community of disciples. So I think that's the second very important distinctive. And I still think there's a lot of work to do on that, but but that's a very important uh, Baptist ethical distinctive, if you will, is that communal aspect of, uh, of who we are. And then I think the third, and, uh, and again, I don't think this is going to surprise anybody, but Baptists have historically uh, had a very great commission-minded approach to sanctification. Uh, Baptists have said part of what it means to grow in Christ is that you love lost people more, and you want to see the fame of God spread where it is not known, in part because as we're growing in holiness, our loves increasingly reflect God's loves. And the things we don't like increasingly reflect what God doesn't like. And what God loves, well, what God does not like is sin, but what God loves is sinners. And so part of what it means to grow in holiness is to uh, not only grow in our hatred of our sin and our desire to, to put sin to death and to cultivate godly virtues, but our desire to reach people with the good news, to see lost men and women come to faith in Christ, to see the spiritually hurting healed, to see the physically suffering not suffer. So everything that we would kind of put under uh, the proclamation of the gospel alongside uh, a broader public witness of, of caring for those in need and, and walking with uh, those who are being oppressed or, or those who are hurting or those who are needy. All of that is very much tied up uh, into a Baptist theology of sanctification. Uh, it is a lived out sanctification, an active sanctification that's not just busyness, and it's not a guilt trip. Have you shared the gospel lately? Have you given to the poor lately? Uh, I, I just think that there's a very active, vibrant, evangelical activism that comes out of a Baptist view of sanctification. My, my friend and former 
uh, doctoral student Alex DePrema has just published a great book on Spurgeon and the poor. And, uh, and that's his whole thesis of this book is he's looking at uh, Charles Spurgeon's understanding of the gospel and the Christian life and how that motivated a whole range of benevolent ministries that came out of the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And I don't think that's unique to Spurgeon. I just think that Spurgeon is a particularly poignant example of who Baptists have been at their best. Spiritual growth leads to the advance of the gospel and the care for the hurting and the promoting of human flourishing. So those three things, kind of a word-centeredness, a church-centeredness, and, and kind of a outward-upward-centeredness, all of that is, is very much uh, not unique to, but distinctive of a Baptist understanding of sanctification. Yeah, I really like the way you frame that, especially I want to dig in on that for a second. I like the way, especially in that second point you made about the individual and community. I was actually just talking to my students a few weeks ago about the relationship of personal ethics as well as social ethics and how they kind of, they're distinct in some sense, but they're not materially different to kind of coin uh, Herman Bobbing's phrase in terms of how theology and ethics fit together. But that idea of personal and social ethics, that we are individuals before God, we are accountable to God, we are responsible, we are individuals, but... We live that out in community. We are part of a larger community, which to me is a really fascinating idea that helps to counter so much of the kind of radical individualism, the radical autonomy of our day in contemporary culture is the idea of, yes, you are an individual, but to be fully human, you're also part of a larger community and you never can kind of segment yourself off. And I love the way you connect that idea to sanctification and then how that starts to connect into social ethics. And I think one of the way, one of the burdens I think both of us have is defining and even retrieving a robust Baptist social ethic or Baptistic kind of evangelical social ethic. Uh, many of our Protestants, brothers and sisters have a maybe a m much more framed out social ethic in some sense, or even some of our friends in the Catholic Church um, historically have a really robust social ethic. I think Baptists in particular, for many, many reasons and many, many reasons are kind of background behind it. But that idea is not having maybe as robust of a social ethic in terms of a defined social ethic. Can you talk a little bit about the connection between sanctification and kind of what may be a distinctive nature or distinctive flavor of social ethics? So again, I think those who are growing in holiness are also growing to uh, hate the things that God hates and love the things that God loves more. And Scripture makes abundantly clear that God cares about human flourishing and all the things that contribute to authentic human flourishing as defined by Scripture and the best of the Christian tradition. So this might be a little simplistic for, uh, for all of my friends who are capital E ethicists, but in a very real sense, I think, uh, a Baptist social ethic is trying to build a bridge from who am I as a growing Christian to who are we as a thriving community of disciples in a local church to how do we engage in these ideas, priorities, and actions that undermine authentic human flourishing, even if some of them might be celebrated 
as human flourishing because of various idols in our culture. And so I do think there is a very real sense this might be controversial. And I'm thinking out loud, that's always dangerous, Jason. I'm just warning you. But I mean, I, I think there's a very real sense if a Christian is not grieving over actions and attitudes that undermine the sanctity of human life and doing whatever is within his or her power uh, to help push back against that darkness. It's going to look different for different people, but but whatever that they can, they're, they're pushing back against that darkness. If that disposition isn't there at all, that's a sanctification issue because people who are growing in their love of God and their love for neighbor care more about the sanctity of human life. And that's just one example, but I think we could apply that uh, to biblical sexuality. I think we could apply that to uh, alleviating poverty and suffering. I think we could apply that to all these big questions about what it means to be human in the midst of an ongoing, ever-evolving technological revolution. Uh, I think that we could uh, apply that to questions of, of public justice. People who are growing in their love for the Lord and their love for other people care about things that hurt God's image bearers. And they care about things that dishonor God's vision for what is right and what is true and what is good and what is beautiful. And so, again, thinking out loud here a little bit, uh, there's an opportunity, uh, hopefully, for us to refine this some uh, in the future with some of the things that we're talking about. But as much as possible, I want to frame ethics for Baptists and other evangelicals, applied ethics especially, as being the implications of a healthy walk with Jesus Christ and, and bowing the knee to his kingship and obeying him, whether that's in ways that are celebrated by the culture, you know, freeing sex slaves, or whether that's ways uh, that are lamented uh, by the culture, pushing back on revisionist sexuality. Because at the end of the day, what we're doing with social ethics is we are glorifying God with our public witness and how we seek to engage the great questions of our day. And as long as we are pleasing the king, and as long as we are certain from scripture that what we're doing glorifies him by contributing to authentic human flourishing, that's what matters most at the end of the day. In God's common grace, there will be moments and instances where our culture says we're with you on that. Probably increasingly, at least for the foreseeable future, there'll be moments where our culture says you're crazy. And that's not good. That's bad. That's not virtuous. That's vicious. But we seek to glorify God and we seek to love our neighbors, whatever the cost might be. Yeah, I really like the way you frame that up. And I think kind of two points to kind of highlight from that. And is we may disagree on the particulars. I think when we think about issues of sexuality in particular, there are some non-negotiables. Or we think about certain other aspects of social ethics, there are some non-negotiables. Uh, this is God's revealed truth. We're not going to go against God's design, especially when we think of flourishing. But maybe in particular policies, there may be good, healthy disagreement. 
even among Baptists, even among brothers and sisters in the same church. And I think that's where um, many have come before us, whether it was Al Mohler or even Andrew Walker recently talked about this idea of triage, kind of whether it's theological triage or this, what I think is a very helpful concept of ethical triage, kind of navigating some of the, the layers of ethics and things. We may disagree on certain particulars, but there are certain non-negotiables. Um, and that's one of the things that I really like, kind of the way you framed it. And then even the idea of how I often will tell my students that it's one thing to have a rich theological mind and to hold to certain theological beliefs, but they're not if they're not leading into action, I start to question the sincerity of those beliefs and how well you're actually understanding them if they're not leading to action, because theology should inform and shape our ethic. But then also our ethic also reveals what we truly believe because you can say one thing and do another. And I think that's one of those kind of ideas, especially, and we can play this out obviously in the future too, about what is really distinctive and unique about a robust social ethic among Baptists and other evangelicals and what's kind of unique about that. Obviously, there's so much more we can unpack. Do you want to jump in there? Well, I just was going to say one thing. Um, I agree with you completely about uh, – there's often room for debates about the particulars as long as we're settled on the non-negotiables. Saying one more thing about that, the way that we engage in those debates about the particulars also says a lot about our sanctification and our walk with the Lord. And at times, whenever there is more heat than light, and when a desire to own the libs or to show those right-wingers who's boss or whatever, uh, Trump's careful, nuanced, biblical thinking. It's a demonstration that we've been discipled more by the world uh, than we've bowed the knee to Jesus, even if we talk a good game about bowing your knee to Jesus. But enough about Twitter. You were going to say something else? <laughs> well, I mean, even that right there illustrates that rich understanding of our personal ethic and our social ethic, our our integrity and those virtues as they play out kind of in the public square. So there's so much more that we could go into on that. Um, but as we end our time today, we normally kind of end on a question of some other resources. But I want to make this kind of a twofold question. One, this is the first, this Theology for the People of God series, this handbook is really the first in this larger series. So I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about what's coming um, in terms of some volumes, kind of the idea, you kind of mentioned the number of volumes that you're planning uh, over the next few years. Um, but then also, are there other recommended resources that you would encourage listeners to pick up if they really enjoyed certain aspects of our conversation? Um, some other works of whether it's ethics or theology or even historical theology that you would recommend for listeners to pick up? I appreciate the question very much. So actually, this is the second volume in the series. The, uh, the first volume in the series came out in 2020 on the Holy Spirit, and it was co-authored by Andreas Kostenberger and Greg Allison. Our Handbook of Theology is the second volume in the series, but again, it's more of a companion volume to the series because of the way that it addresses uh, a wider range of questions. We do have three additional volumes that are in the hopper right now, so they're all with the publisher and will come out over the next 12 to 15 months. Coming out later this year, uh, or actually it might be first of 2024, is uh, Katie McCoy and John Hammett's volume on the doctrine of humanity. Coming out shortly after that is Tom Schreiner and Chris Morgan's volume on the doctrine of salvation. And then coming out soon after that is David Dockery and Malcolm Yarnell's volume on the doctrine of scripture. 
so we have a number of volumes that are already uh, at the publisher and, and others that are being worked on. If folks are interested, the volume I'm working on uh, with my good friend Keith Whitfield is The Doctrine of the Christian Life, uh, where we're going to dig into some of these very things that we're talking about today. In terms of books to recommend, uh, let me recommend three. So we've talked a little bit about sanctification. For those who are interested in a good book about the doctrine of sanctification that is uh, written in such a way that thoughtful, ordinary Christians would benefit from it, but it's rich enough that uh, even the most seasoned theologian would be blessed, uh, I would highly recommend J.I. Packer's book, Rediscovering Holiness which is not one of his best-known books, but I think it's one of his best books. Uh, so J.I. Packer, Rediscovering Holiness. For a good, recent introduction to Christian ethics, if you're listening to this, and inexplicably this is the first time listening to this podcast that you're thinking, I should read a good ethics textbook. Uh, that's probably not many people, but if that's you, my friends Mark Lederbach and Evan Lino a couple of years ago published a wonderful uh, survey of Christian ethics, uh, ethics as worship. Uh, I think it's it's a great uh, entry level textbook survey, very Christ centered, high view of Scripture. Uh, I agree with almost all the stuff they say, and uh, and where they disagree, they'll agree. Where we disagree now, they'll agree with me in heaven. But uh, but I think it's a really good textbook. And then the third resource that I would recommend, we talked a little bit about historical theology. Uh, at the risk of being slightly self-serving, uh, Jason Dusing and I co-edited a volume a couple of years ago called Historical Theology for the Church, uh, which is a collection of essays that covers uh, the history of Christian doctrine and, and really focuses over and over again on several themes, the doctrine of Scripture, the doctrine of salvation, uh, and the doctrine of the church. And, and then at various points adds other topics that become uh, important at different seasons in the Christian life, also the doctrine of God. Uh, so uh, I would recommend that book. Every copy of that book that you purchase uh, helps to feed starving children that my wife gave birth to. <laughs> well, I guess that's a fitting end uh, to our podcast here. Uh, but Nathan, I really appreciate that. We'll make sure to link to all of those resources uh, here in the show notes, as well as this new handbook of uh, the New Theology for the People of God series, a handbook of theology from Beanie and Academic uh, that Nathan, you, as well as some others edited. Um, one, I just want to say thank you. I really enjoyed this conversation. It was really fun to dig into some of these ideas. Obviously, we'll keep the conversation going in many ways. Uh, but I also want to thank you for taking the time to join us today here on the Digital Public Square. It has been my honor, Jason. Thanks very much. Well, from all of us here at the Digital Public Square, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and then also to share the word about the podcast with others. As a reminder, and connect with Dr. Finn and learn more about this new volume, A Handbook for Theology, as well as the recommended resources we talked about in the show notes. Also, make sure to sign up to receive the weekly tech email briefing that comes out each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology today, as well as stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe at jasonthacker.com slash weekly tech. The Digital Public Square is a production of the Research Institute at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is produced and hosted by Jason Thacker. Production assistance is provided by Caden Christian and technical production provided by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thank you, and I hope you have a great week.